1: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing so well. How are you today, Tim? I am doing great in my neck of the woods, and uh, I'm excited that we have really kind of like a sequel episode to uh, an episode we aired about a month ago um, with a fellow named Lou Velozzi, and we have his co-host... From the End of Watch podcast on today, his name is Kevin Grogan. He is also an author and also former law enforcement and a very interesting fellow.
2: Yeah, very interesting fellow, very intense, but nothing that you know you should be nervous about when approaching this conversation. He he just brings it. He, he brings it w- with his law enforcement career. He brought it in the interview. He also brings it in his writing. He has a book called Black Sheep, White Cop, Savannah Exposed, and he was a former homicide detective in savannah georgia and this book like the title says exposes some of the going ons within the department and outside of the department
1: yeah fascinating book and really great conversation with kevin and definitely invite you to read his book and subscribe to his podcast end of watch
2: and i will say we do a lot of episodes that appear to be critical of law enforcement which is why we do these episodes as well so we can get the sense of what it is really like to be in law enforcement, to be a homicide detective and to see these things on a day-to-day basis. Uh, the really cool thing about having a conversation with Kevin and also with Lou is that they recognize the mental toll that it takes on an individual. And they recognize the fact that people do need to have psychological counseling uh help in that area it's it's just as important as nursing a, a broken arm or or a bullet wound like it, you just you don't see it but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist and these these guys get that
1: right and law enforcement are human they make mistakes too and it's a hard job so we're not here to uh, to bash anybody and uh we're here to uh hear the interesting stories and this is kevin's really got one So I hope you enjoy this interview with Kevin and definitely subscribe to his podcast and pick up the book. There are links in the show notes.
2: And feel free to swing by crawlspace-media.com to learn more about what we do and all of our fine programs that we have.
1: Welcome to Crawl Space, Kevin Grogan. How are you today?
2: I'm well. How are you? We're doing really well, and, and we're really excited, and we're looking forward to the conversation with you today. Uh, we had your cohort, uh, Lou uh, Velozion, and he is the co-host uh, with you uh, on your show, End of Watch, but he's got this crazy backstory to his life, and honestly, like... Tim and I had to decompress a little bit after hearing his story before having you on like back to back. And I wow. remember um our 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 peer in this, our friend Jason uh Usry, he wanted us to get right in touch with you and get you on. And Tim and I actually had the conversation where we're like we got to take a breather. Like we got to give it a week or two because <laughs> cuz following up Lou's story with yours, I think that it's just I mean, I was sweating at the end of Lou's story. So anyway, really looking forward to this conversation, and um, yeah, thanks for coming on.
0: I appreciate you having me. And Lou Lou will make anybody sweat, man. That guy could stress out the Pope.
1: <laughs> well, he didn't stress uh, out Tim. Tim <laughs> Tim was yeah, he was kind of a softy. Uh, I oh, would yeah. say it's... yeah. Well, I can tell part. you
0: this: he softened in his old age, but uh, yeah, Lou Lou's uh, quite the character, and. Mm. You guys heard part of the story. I'm, I'm telling you, the whole thing is pretty amazing. He, he's a pretty incredible guy.
2: Well, absolutely. We definitely want to get into your story as well. But uh, we had a conversation, a real quick exchange before we started recording, and you had said that what we saw was was Little Lou um, oh, because, yeah. and we were except for Tim. Tim wasn't as impressed, but I was. I was impressed with the physique. Um, but uh, apparently, what we saw was Little Lou, which was pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, no, Lou, Lou is now what I refer to as only moderately imposing. But uh, <laughs> back in his playing days of uh, his ATF career, uh, he uh, he was a large fella, you know, but I'm sure he got into the story with the, at you the tail end of his career. He went through a lot of things, but he dropped a lot of weight uh, and it wasn't fat. I mean, he was just he, he was under a lot of stress. And when he came down, boy, but uh, Lou now is uh, small compared to the old guy, but you know, his aura is still there. He's still, he's still pretty well intact.
1: And check out that episode if you haven't already. And since we're on the topic of Lou, how did you meet him? How did you get to start this podcast with Lou?
0: Well, Lou and I met during our careers. Uh, you know, I was, a, the first time I met Lou, I was on uh, the expanded patrol operation. I was on a crime suppression unit in Savannah, Georgia and Lou and his partner, Toby, uh, who's a great friend of mine. Uh they were running an operation and we kind of caught the tail end of it where they were doing the wrap up. But then Lou and I worked together a, a number of times during uh I had some OCDF gang cases, which OCDF is uh the organized crime drug enforcement task force. Um and Lou would sweep in and help with a lot of that stuff. And then uh he had a storefront out in Statesboro and uh, I got uh, involved in that through a case that I was working and Lou and I worked together for a long time, but it was really, uh, what really brought Lou and I together and and got us to the podcast was, you know, the end of our careers, we both went through hell. Uh, a lot of it, especially mine was, uh, self-induced or self-inflicted, I guess I could say, but, uh, we were going through the worst time at the same time so that really where we had gotten along well before it it really brought us uh together and then you know lou lou he says i'm the reason he's writing his book and i'll tell you flat out he's the reason that i definitely wrote mine so you know it just kind of where you are in life brings together sometimes and uh you know we've had a lot of fun uh even through the bad times so
2: well that's uh pretty good segue to your book. I We should definitely, uh, we definitely will talk about your book, but you uh, dropped a lot of nuggets there to follow up on uh, just real quick to bring it up. Your book is black sheep, white cop, Savannah exposed. And this is, uh, would you say it's an expose?
0: <laughs> you know what? I, I don't even know what to call it. The, the funny thing about it is when I wrote that book, which is still it's been out four and a half years and I, I still laugh about it because, you know, my best friend growing up called me one night and said, uh, hey, did you write a book? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did. And he's like, wow, of all the members of your family, you're the last one I thought would write a book. <laughs> so we, we laughed about that a good bit. But uh, you know what? It was that book came from a very cathartic effort uh, uh, when I was going through uh, the downfall of my career. I sat down uh, and and wrote a lot of my thoughts out. Uh, it's, it's funny because Lou uh, and our buddy Jay Dobbins, who wrote uh, No Angel and Catching Hell, which are both New York Times bestsellers, Lou was talking about his books and he's like, "Yeah, you know, I'm going to write a book." And I'm like, "I don't know anything about writing books." But uh, we got together with another guy and you know just started talking about it and writing all these things down. But my goal really was just to have a, basically just a coffee table piece where uh, I talked about a bunch of my friends. The first writing was all about, it was very angry and, you know, what people had done to me and, and how I was mad about this and that. But as I got writing it, I started thinking about all the people like Lou and others that I, I worked with in my career. And I started writing about them in, the, in our stories. And, and that was a very, very cathartic, it was very, very helpful Uh, It helped me quit drinking. It helped me do, you know, help me kind of get things uh, on track. So the success of that book, uh, it still blows me away. But I I really thought I was going to give 50 of them away and, and just be that.
1: Well, congratulations on the book. And so tell us a little bit about your career. You were a homicide detective in Savannah. And so that's how you came to meet Lou while he was running a storefront operation as an undercover ATF agent.
0: Oh man, I I met Lou long, long before homicide. So I was a street cop. Uh, Like I said, they had a huge operation. It was a takedown. We we bumped in, but I worked uh, when I was on patrol, I worked in a housing project in Savannah. And, you know, anytime you're living in low income areas, and you're working there, you see a lot of drugs, you see a lot of gangs, you see, which, of course, they're synonymous with guns. Um, And I learned very early in my early on in my career, that any place you have drugs, you're going to have guns, and anywhere you have guns, you're going to have violent crimes linked to that. So you know, I spent the majority of my career focusing on that, getting guns out of the hands of the guys that would use them. And those are, you know, uh, very simplistically and generally speaking, uh, drug dealers and gangbangers. Those are the guys who are out there uh, shooting and killing. And those are the guys that we went after. So, you know, our, our, our careers uh, overlapped um, numerous times, but you know, the storefront, uh, those operations are just tremendous, you know, narcotics, uh, work. So it, my career started off on patrol in a housing project. I wound up on a crime suppression unit, which is called Expo. So the title of my book, uh, Savannah Exposed, you know, the EXPO is capitalized because a lot of it is about the guys that I, uh, ran around with on the street. Um, But again, we're our noses were right in drugs, gangs, guns um, that I had a lot of success there. Um, Wound up going to a narcotics task force. Uh, That's where we started. uh, We piggybacked on Lou's storefront uh, out in Statesboro. And then, you know, when that went well, uh, I wound up doing another OCDF case. Again, that's Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force on a gang out by Fort Stewart uh, where the mighty third infantry division is. Um, But I I picked up a lot of things along the way and then uh, went back to the street, uh, worked another OCDF case in two of the higher crime areas in Savannah uh, with my partner, Toby Taylor. And then, uh, you know, and Lou was always uh, very close by if I needed anything there, but he was running other storefronts at that point. And then uh, I went from that, which is uh, probably the most fun I've ever had uh, in policing, uh, and then wound up in homicide, which was not very fun. Uh, You know, it's a very glamorous position. It's a very thing. But, you know, I I worked 90 hours a week, maybe got paid for 50 or 60 if I wanted to fill out all the paperwork. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, I never really felt like I even if I caught the uh, murderer, you catch the bad guy, uh, at the end of it, you never really know if you've done anything because no matter what you do, that person's already dead. So I, you know, I always like playing offense as opposed to defense and homicide is very reactionary. I I think my expertise was more proactive.
2: And it's really interesting to hear your take on the homicide unit, but I want to talk a little bit about, the, um, the Expo uh, crime unit that you worked for or worked on or worked with, the Expanded Patrol Operations, EXPO, it was a, a, a bit is controversial, saying it the right way. It was a bit controversial in Savannah and um, had received a little bit of criticism. Uh, can you give a little background? How did that start? And I don't know. From what I've read about it, I am supportive of anything that can... Give a significant drop in violent crimes, and and that's what it seemed to be. It seemed very effective. Um, where did it start, and and why did it get so much criticism?
0: All right. it, you know, the the criticism and the controversy was basically within the police department and in the city of Savannah. Anybody on the outside looking in, it, it wasn't so controversial. It was a it was a tremendously effective unit. Uh, you know, and again, we're talking two thousand six. So, very proactive policing uh, was uh, encouraged back then, and now in 2021, anything post 2014, I think, anything post Ferguson, Missouri, you know, proactive policing is whoa, 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 you know, let's worry about everybody's rights, let's worry about, uh, you know, kindler, kinder, gentler policing. Um, So it was a different style of policing. It It was very aggressive. What made it controversial, I think, in the department was the formation of it. They circumvented, and it didn't necessarily circumvent, but they kind of changed the rules and policies. But when you're the chief of police, there was a big time murder in downtown Savannah. Uh, they called it the debutante murder. Uh, Jennifer Ross was downtown after a, after a big dance, and they were walking back uh, as couples to a, an apartment and they were robbed. Well, during the robbery, Miss Ross, was a 19-year-old uh, college student, she committed the ultimate uh, street crime, and uh, she bucked the jack, meaning she wouldn't let these guys rob her. She wouldn't give up her purse. So they shot her quite cowardly, and, and she wound up dying uh, about a week later, and it was the first murder of 2006. So that was really the catalyst. Violent crime had kind of been spinning out of control in Savannah, but that was a the catalyst for Chief Lovett to really do something. And that's when they formed this unit. So there were all the processes of going out and selecting people. But Sergeant Greg Capers, who was my sergeant, is now a very good friend of mine, went out and he picked the most aggressive cops he could find. And he uh, basically took the leash off. I, I mean, I guess you'd call it, taking the gloves off and going out. Uh, so we were, we were very, very aggressive, but highly effective. You know, the personnel that he picked, we knew where to go looking for it. You know, we weren't out there looking for little old ladies who weren't wearing their seatbelts and we weren't, we're looking for jaywalkers. We were looking for drug dealers and gang bangers and people who were out in the city of Savannah pulling triggers. And, and that's what we did and who we went after. And, uh, I think it's about, 978 arrests later, uh, you know, we made a, we made an impact on the city for sure.
1: Yeah. It seems like, uh, 15%, uh, decrease in violent crime in Savannah in 2006, greatly, uh, accredited to the, uh, expo. Um, so when you say aggressive, like, uh, so it's expanded patrol operation, you're driving around much more, just, uh, walking around, um, dangerous areas more.
0: Well, the the design of it's different. You know, we weren't responsible for calls for service. And and that's the thing about pro, you know, when I was on patrol, I was a highly proactive police officer. You know, I would go, I get out of my car. I would anytime I was not responding to a call, I was out looking for trouble. So if I had guys hanging out on hanging out on the corners at two o'clock in the morning, I stopped to see what they were up to. You know, I if there was nothing going on on the radio, I got out of my car and I walked through my neighborhood. I'd go through the lanes and, and Savannah is a funny city. It, you know, you, uh, any other city calls them alleys, but, uh, here in Savannah, we're a bit pretentious. So we call them lanes, but I'd go out there and, and walk those lanes. Just like, you know, all my buddies that were on my shift and, and go looking for things expo. We didn't have any of those responsibilities of answering calls. We just went out and looked for it. That's all we did 12 hours a day. So we, we worked 12-hour shifts, five days a week. Uh, you know, we, we made our overtime. And we went out and, you know, we earned our money for sure.
2: And when you say you looked for trouble, I want to just make it clear that you're not saying you caused trouble or started trouble. You were looking for trouble that was happening.
0: Oh, no. We we went out to prevent trouble. We went out there to go uh, make sure, you know, <sighs> Uh, the thing most people don't understand uh, about uh, police work. And unfortunately a lot of police officers don't understand it is it's always out there. There's always something out there for you to address. You know, uh, I, I think the misconception in our society is that bad guys are bad guys because they're dumb and that couldn't be anything farther from the truth. So people think crime happens when the sun goes down and, you know, only in shady parts of the area or shady parts of the city. It's not true. You know, we had a shooting, we have shootings downtown in the historic uh, tourist district of Savannah all the time, broad daylight. And, and it's not because Savannah is such a violent city. It's just because there's something going on all the time everywhere. And, and, you know, you see spikes of it here and there, but we we're always out there trying to find it, uh, you know, cause it's not, it's not as easy to find as people think. I see a lot of news reports where people say, oh, well, we know who the bad guys are and we know where they're doing. No, you don't. I mean, if you did, there wouldn't be crime. We could stop it all the time. These guys are not, you know, they're just as professional at what they do as our police department is at what they do.
2: Yeah, it's a good point. When did it um, become apparent for yourself that this was something that you needed to do, that that was the way you needed to work, which was to get out of the car, walk down the lanes and try to find something. You said you'd always been like that. Was there anything that happened during your policing that, that made, made that happen? Like where maybe you saw something or has it just, was it in there since uh police Academy?
0: Oh no, it's not something you learn in the Academy. It's something you learn on the street. And I, I've, I was always blessed to work with some of the best cops in in Savannah, you know, great sergeants who let us go out and work and, great officers, uh, older guys who taught us a, a lot about, you know, how to talk to people, where to go looking for these things. And, uh, you know, y- you gain experience or I gained experience from other people's experiences. And like I said, uh, Savannah is, I call it the Boston in the South. It's beautiful. It's historical, it's traditional, but it's very alive. There's a, there's a lot going on down here. And, uh, you know, I just, worked with guys who stuck their nose in it. And, you know, I was fresh home from Iraq. So I was not shy about sticking my nose in things. And, and, uh, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, it's in your blood. You, you know where to find it. If you're looking for it,
1: you say the Boston of the South. Yep. Oh, okay. You are from the Northeast, right?
0: I am from Windsor, Connecticut. So I was born uh-huh. in Hartford and I grew up in the town of Windsor, which was the first town established in Connecticut in 1633 a hundred years before Savannah, which was settled in 1733 for your history buffs.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I, uh, I thought you were going to say because of the amount of organized crime, it does sound like there is more organized crime than I would have expected in both places, uh, Boston and in, uh, Savannah from what I've heard from you guys.
0: There's a ton in Boston, but, uh, Savannah, is no shy to, I mean, if you just think about the logistics of it, we have the third largest port, on the East Coast, what do you think comes in and out of that port constantly? You know, guns, drugs, traffic, human trafficking, all all those things. You you know, uh, anytime you have ports like that, and you know it's a rail hub. There's it, there's everything you need to get your contraband. We have here in Savannah, so of course you're gonna have the issues you have anywhere else.
2: You mentioned at the beginning that. Uh... Writing the book was a way to relieve the stress. I I think you said that even the writing process uh, contributed to your uh, quitting drinking. And and I'm wondering if you had some idea that writing the book. I'm wondering if you if you knew how much stress you had. Oh. I'm really fascinated by the the amount of stress that's put on uh, people in law enforcement police officers like yourself especially homicide especially those who take part in um, you know an organization like Expo or what Lou did with the storefronts this because we see it on TV all the time it's glamorized on TV these uh, like high risk high stress situations and and I don't I don't know if people really and I don't know if I really understand how much stress
1: that is no, we do we do we get it.
0: <laughs> I I tell I tell you what I mean. Honestly, I had no clue. Yeah. If, if you had told me when I was in the thick of things, like look, as a matter of fact, I I had that conversation. And I I think I I wrote about it in uh, a book, and it's funny because it still rings in my head. I was working with uh, another officer one morning, and it was uh, nine o'clock on a Wednesday morning, uh, and I'm sitting there. You know, and I'm a very very proactive police officer at this point. I'm I'm going out hundred miles an hour all day long. Lou and I talk about it uh, a lot. We call it redlining. You know, you, you're operating and your RPMs I was always. When I was on the street, it was always in red. I was always, uh, you know, going looking for looking for the next uh, big arrest, looking for the next uh, big thing. And so I would stick my nose in all of it. So this Wednesday morning, we're out rolling around. And I'm riding with a, another guy who's like, dude, you need to pace yourself, man. You're going to burn out. You're going to do this. And he this guy's a former Marine. And, you know, he's what I call uh, a career police officer as opposed to a cop. You know, we you know, you, there's different styles of doing it. And I always say that. And a lot of people get mad at me like I'm trying to say that a career police officer is lesser. And that's not it. It, it takes all different kinds. It's just. You know, the way I'm wired, it was go, go, go. The way he was wired is, you know, kind of sit back and take it. And you need all of that because it it takes all kinds to um, policing is a very complex mission. So it's not something you can do one way that's going to work. And there you go. You have to be very creative. You have to be uh, very patient in some instances and and very, very aggressive in others. I just always happen to be on the uh, aggressive side of it. But it, I mean, I remember him saying, he's like, dude, you better slow down. You're going to burn out. And I thought he was crazy. I absolutely thought he was crazy. I got out of the car with him. I was like, all right, this guy doesn't want to do anything. So I go out a few, you know, like an hour later, uh, change partners and we go out and make a, a big drug arrest by one of the local uh, things. It, again, 10 o'clock in the morning, we're, we're pulling ounces of crack cocaine out of people's pockets You know, because that's when it happens. They're they're moving it when they're not expecting the police to be looking for it. But I was so uh, entangled in it. And the the thing is, you know, police officers don't make a lot of money. So I'm working 12 hour shifts. I'm doing all this. Then you get into different assignments, uh, you know, ATF task force, homicide, whatever, whatever your specialized unit you get assigned to you know, you're working these hours, you're not getting paid very well, but you still, you know, have to feed your family. You still have to keep your lights on. You got cell phone bills, you got all that stuff. So on top of my regular duties, I'm working off duty security, uh, mostly at bars, you know, so you're there and, and alcohol was just something that was always there for me. And, you know, if you had told me then I had a drinking problem, I'd laugh at you. I'd be like, I don't have any problems drinking. It doesn't bother me at all. But, uh, I didn't know I had a drinking problem until I told myself I couldn't do it anymore. And Ooh, buddy, did I have a realization that it was a problem then Uh, you know, alcohol is, is, is just as bad as any other, whatever drug, your, your drug of choice is Uh, alcohol is no better. I I can tell you that just because it's illegal when you're 21 doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's good for you. And I'm not preaching to people who drink at all because you know, doesn't, yeah, to each their own, but I can tell you it, it
1: didn't do a lot for me. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor
2: and a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Yeah, right. I can imagine being in that environment. The last thing you need is something to be influencing you, or even um, dulling your uh, your reactions and, and emotions. Which you know, people drink excessively for numerous reasons and you don't even understand when you've gotten to the point where it's become the addiction and you're dependent on it. So, um, yeah, that must've been a crazy moment when you realized like, I can't do this anymore.
0: And I had a very immature uh, approach to it. You know, I, I ignored a lot of things and I was a cop and I was, you know, I was uh, what I considered to be a damn good cop. So you couldn't tell me anything, you know, I, I was bulletproof and invincible, uh, Well, one night after a, uh, you know, disagreement in my home, I wound up taking my government vehicle uh, after I had been drinking and wrecking it. Uh, And that that actually led to, you know, a super turmoil. But every alcoholic or addict says that they have a rock bottom. Thankfully for me, that was my rock bottom where no one was seriously hurt. Uh, Thank God no one was killed. But uh, that was a that was a eye opening moment in my life. The the day after the accident, uh, I put myself in rehab. And then the first day I was like, what am I doing with all these drunks and these, you know, these addicts and all that? Because I'm a cop. I don't belong here until the second day. And I'll never forget it. I sat down. It was the morning session. I'm sitting down. I'm looking at the guy next to me and the girl on the other side of me and i'm thinking i don't belong with these people they're sick they got problems they you know i'm nowhere near this bad and then the uh, the counselor drew this bubble chart of personality uh characteristics and traits and just drew the picture it was like he drew my life for me uh right on the sheet and said this guy right here is an alcoholic if this if this resonates with you you're an alcoholic and i'm thinking this dude's been spying on me my whole life because like I said, a guy I've never met before drew everything about me. I mean, intimate things that, you know uh, you don't share with other people. And he drew them out on a board for me. And I was like, Whoa, I'm like, uh, maybe I should, maybe I should listen to this. Maybe, maybe I am just as sick as these people. And you uh, know, it it's one of those things, alcoholism and, and those things there, they are terrible if you don't deal with them.
1: Wow. Um, So the rehab experience was a good one for you?
0: Oh, yeah. No, you know, it it was something I had to do. Um, It helped me get real honest with myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not so much. Didn't so much pay off then when I was going through it. But now I'm a much better person for it. So I wound up getting arrested for DUI. Then politics got involved. So our police chief, two detectives... or or three detectives uh, and a sergeant were all in trouble uh, right about the time I got my DUI. And one of the the sergeant that got in trouble was indicted for all kinds of things. Because again, you're talking 2014. This is right after Ferguson, Missouri goes. So the headlines are all police corruption, police corruption, police corruption. So our district attorney's office was hot and heavy after uh, police corruption. A little too hot and heavy, I might add, but um, you know, when those politics got involved, one of the officers, a sergeant named Malik Khalees, um his attorney filed what they call a selective prosecution motion saying, you're only charging black police officers and you're charging them with things that you'd never charge a civilian with, which is absolutely true, and it's absolutely what they did. Uh, the day that they filed that selective prosecution motion my DUI turned into a making false statements, which is a felony and, uh, tampering with evidence, which threw me for quite the loop, uh, at the time, cause I had no idea what was going on, but it turned my misdemeanor traffic offense into, uh, a big felony trial. And I was kind of on the shelf for two years, seven months and 13 days. Not that I counted or anything like that, but, uh you know during that time that was when i sat down and wrote all these things down and it turned out to be that book
2: so in a way the book wouldn't have happened if the timing hadn't come together the way it did
0: no absolutely not no way i had, I had no aspirations of being a writer i had no you know none, none of that it's just one of those things it, it was a a very positive it, you know they say you take lemons you you hand yourself lemons, you make lemonade. Well, uh, that books the lemonade of that uh time period. And how long did you
2: spend in rehab?
0: Uh good question. Eight weeks, I think. It was an outpatient thing, so I was I was at home, you know, just but I would report there every day.
2: Oh, good for you. I mean, eight weeks is a very impressive amount of time for you to see and recognize and make that change.
0: Well, I'll tell you it's it's seven years. Uh yeah and it's, it's a continual process. You know, I, I, got anybody who can quit their addiction. I don't, you know, I, and I'm not patting myself on the back. Don't take it wrong, but anybody who can overcome those demons and, and put, uh, their, uh, addictions aside, I, I got a lot of respect for that because it's, it's a big fight. It, it really is. It's, it's a daily struggle of, you know, uh, the, I hate to throw clichés out there but the whole one day at a time thing comes right out of alcoholics anonymous and the, the other thing is you know, I learned that I didn't have to tell myself that I could never drink again because that was insurmountable to me. What do you mean? You know, I'm I grew up in a very Irish family. I grew up around a ton of cops, uh, you know, my whole circle is cops and heavy drinking cops. I might add and you know, how am I going to exist in that world if I'm not drinking? So You know, the way you, the way I get through that and the way of a lot of other alcoholics get through it is it's not that I, I don't have to tell myself that I'm never going to drink again. I just tell myself I'm not going to drink today and I get through it that one day at a time. And it's, you know, and some days are harder than others, but you know, not drinking, quitting drinking hasn't hurt me at all. Not even there's, it's had no, it's had zero, uh, negative side effects.
1: Great and it does seem like uh alcohol's a big part of the law enforcement culture um just from things we've heard um and it seems like uh that's true from what uh, your experience as well
0: yeah it's it, you know it, it's one of those things when you when you get done ripping and running when you get down uh facing off with the bad guys it, it's nice to have a, a drink to uh calm yourself down afterwards and again, again you know when you play the games that that we played in the way we played them. We, we need to tone it down quite a bit. So we, uh, we drowned a lot of our aggressions out
1: Sometimes I feel like I need a drink after an interview for God's sake. Um, And what you're doing is a lot more intense. Um, Do you think there's something to, if you push it down so far, like as you say, your demons, um, it's going to come out another way in another way. And often alcohol for law enforcement is uh, a common way for it to come out
0: with without question. You know, and the thing is, I said, I've always fancied myself as a tough guy. I always thought, you know, I was always into contact sports, you know, I did karate for most of my childhood, boxing, hockey, football, anything I could get involved into that was, you know, a challenge, a physical thing, you know, very, uh, but the thing is, didn't cry about it very much. We didn't, you know, you don't go to your friends and sit down after a football game and talk about how you feel, you know, like, Hey, I really, this didn't go too well for me. So I'd like to talk to you about it. That's, it's not, uh, that's not the popular thing to do. Um, so, you know, we bottled a lot of that stuff inside and then you get into, uh, very real world situations like the war in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, it, uh other trouble spots in the world where, you know, a lot of former military get into law enforcement and then they go and they see what they see in the streets. You see, you know, drug abuse, you see suicides, you see homicides, you see shootings, you see robbings, You really see the underbelly of the world and you go. And again, you're not sitting in the locker room afterwards going, oh, I feel so terrible. You know, you, you shake it off, you beat your chest and, and there's a lot of false bravado in it, which is a survival mechanism. You know, that's how you go back to work every day. But, uh, you know, I used to be kind of a a caveman about it, Um, and it took my experience and it took my downfall to make me realize, you know, that it's all right to not be okay. Alcohol is not the solution, and, you know, that's why Lou and I started that podcast, So we could tell guys, because believe me, there there aren't too many guys in the world that are tougher than Lou and tougher than guys like Jay Dobbins and Victor Avila and, uh, you know, all the guys that we've worked with over the years, Uh, some of the toughest humans I've ever met in my entire life. And if they can get on our show and we sit there and tell you it's all right to not be okay, it's all right to talk about it, then hopefully that kid who's going through what I was going through uh, isn't afraid to... Call somebody, talk to somebody, and go, you know, we're trying to lose that stigma of, you know, you can still be a badass and still be a human being.
1: Speaking of badasses, you forgot to mention us um, when you were listing badasses. Um, yeah, oh, you didn't, you didn't hear? I
0: must have been yeah. rolling through it so fast. <laughs> I've never seen you fight, man. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that's great. And I think um, your podcast uh, has a has a great focus on that, too. You know, it, 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 your very first episode, you sort of speak with Lou about how um, you understand how mental health is such a big um, part of law enforcement. And I just feel like this wasn't part of the conversation at all. Just only a few years ago.
0: No, and, and I agree. And, and the thing is, we, Lou and I are, are textbooks examples of how to uh, go through your career the wrong way you can read Lou Velozzi's story. You can read all these guys' stories, but you, it really doesn't do it justice. The level uh, of commitment and expertise, you know, to say that those guys are, are good cops is, is such a mild understatement. They're, they're the reason that communities in this country are safe because of guys like that. And the thing is, we never took care of ourselves. Lou never took care of himself. You know, those guys, it's it's essential because the the fact that he lasted as long as he did the fact that I made it as long as I did the fact that, you know, any of the guys that I've worked with are still, some of them are still out there cranking at the level that we did, you know, 10 years ago or shit, 20 years ago. Now it's, it's getting old, man. But, uh, how they do it without that, um, self-care without that you know the buddy system without all these things without recognizing that is an issue it's you know that's why the suicide rate in the law enforcement community is through the roof and and it's a scary thing and if us getting on a podcast sitting down talking about it telling people that it's all right you know it's all right to feel this way if that helps them uh not pull the trigger if that helps them to go get help then you know that, to me, is a bigger success than anything I was able to do in my career.
2: Where can people like that get help? Where can law enforcement who are dealing with these mental health issues, they're not doing any sort of self-care, they listen to End of Watch, your podcast, and, and they realize that it's okay to say, I'm not, I'm not well. Like, I'm well physically, but I'm not well mentally. Where do they go from there?
0: We also did a show on that. It's a two edged sword. You know, Mm -hmm. his thing is you got to be careful about uh, what you say and what's bothering you because that stigma is still very much alive, no matter what uh, we're trying to do. But when you're talking about security clearances and and, if you go and you say, Hey man, I'm thinking about killing myself. They put you on a rubber gun squad. And I, I I can't tell you uh, that I don't still feel the same way because if you go, Uh, to a call and you're going and your backup is a guy that, you know, is, is going through these issues. You know, that's a scary thing in a number of ways. You don't know what he's going to do. That stigma, like I said, is very much alive and there's no easy answer, but um, veterans affairs has hotlines uh, that people can call. uh, And that I suppose is only applicable to military veterans, but the badge of life, um, Dr. Marla Friedman and coach Sokolov, those guys are, are out there preaching for, you know, guys like Lou and I, young guys like Lou and I, uh, to come get help if they need it. Uh, the all secure foundation command Sergeant Major Tom Satterley runs his all secure foundation, you know, for guys just like us to give a call and say, Hey, you know, these are, in and all those hotlines, I don't have the numbers with me, but I'm sure if we, uh, do a Google search. You look into those and, and uh, you know, there's no better way because those those people that you're talking to on the other line, they've been there. They've done it, too. And, and they understand the community because cops speak a different language. They, they really do. It, it's uh, the law enforcement world. It, we think we're so different and we think we're so special from everybody else. It, it's not so much, but we do have our own language. So as soon as you're sitting and you're talking to people and you realize they don't speak that language, it's a big turnoff, especially when it's stuff you don't want to talk about in the first place.
2: Right. And in your opinion, do you think that there needs to be more funding or maybe a reallocation of funds, especially in the uh, training um, aspect of becoming a police officer that immediately deals with addressing this, that immediately uh, equips someone who wants to be a police officer with the, um, the right path to address it if they need to from someone like yourself, you know, maybe, maybe they're, they're, they're part of some training that they can speak that language to a young police officer right from the start. Does that even exist?
0: I I don't know that it exists. Uh, I don't know. I, I I think it, that's a, again, because, (sighs) Letting somebody with mental health issues perform a law enforcement duty, there's you know there's a liability there. What happens? What happens uh, if this person is going and you didn't recognize it, and they go out and something happens as a result of their condition or their, name. so that's why it's so tricky. Um, the the thing is, city governments uh, have employee assistant. Program. I know the federal government, state has, they all have their employee assistance. But the city of Savannah, you know, I remember I was involved in an incident uh, where a young man was killed after an armed robbery, and I it was a pursuit, and he uh, he was killed at the end of it. And they sent me to EPA, but it was a city agency. So if I had gone in there and and told them how I really felt about. Uh, the incident, how I really felt about what was going on and that kind of stuff. I would have been put on the rubber gun squad. I would have been, you know, and that can ultimately affect your career. So my first suggestion on that is any of these employee assistant agencies have to be completely disconnected from the city, state, or federal agency, and they have to be confidential. Otherwise there's, there's no way to get these men and women help. If they really, really need it, because the thing is, you know, it, to me, a mental health injury is just the same as it's the same thing as you blow your back out, you blow your knee out. You know, if part of your uh, brain ain't working so good for a little while, you, you need to rehab that and, and take care of it, too. Uh, I don't have the perfect answer for it, but I, I think that's a good and, and big start for it.
2: Right. I think it's important to address that when you said you don't have the perfect answer. You've been through some shit, you know, and you talk about it. And I think just addressing the fact that you don't have the answer, but identifying that there is some problem that needs to be addressed. I think that's a good I think that's a really good start. And
0: It's a huge problem.
2: Yeah. Are there any government agencies that... You are working with or you would consider working with to implement
0: something like this? I'm, I'm not working with anybody currently. Uh, and, you know, my door is always open for that. I, I yeah. get my phone number out a lot. Um, I, I go, I speak uh, at community meetings. I, I, the thing is, it, the law enforcement world a, it's a crazy world. When you're in it, you're in it deep. When you're out on the outside of it, you're forgotten real quick. And the thing is, you know, you're either in the club or you're not, uh, thankfully through a lot of notoriety and stuff like that. I've, I've always, and I still have some very, very, very close friends that are still in a local department and state agencies around. So I get a chance to talk to people and every so often I'll get a message on Facebook from a a young officer saying, Hey man, uh, things ain't going too good. What do I do? So, you know, my ears are always open my shoulder. You know, I'm, I'm always, uh, willing to help but you know it's guys like i am always plugging people as as often as i can but you know command sergeant major tom satterly and the all uh all secure foundation those are the guys that you know they're out there doing it they're reaching out they're actively and proactively looking uh to go out and help people and and you know if i can be of any help to anybody that's what i try to do
2: Yeah. And I think that the podcast does a really good job with that. And you doing appearances like this. Also, your book as well. You really don't pull any punches with your book. Um, And I want to talk about that real quick. Uh, What was some of the harder things that you had to address in your book? Was there anything in there that you wrote and you, you, for whatever reason, maybe thought, like, I shouldn't put it in there, (laughs) but your gut was telling you to keep it?
0: No, I I don't think that way. (laughs) Yeah. If I think it, it comes out of my mouth. And in this case, it goes on the page. Now, did I have several other people saying, "Whoa, I wouldn't say that? Yeah, a lot of people told me uh, those things. But what's funny about the book is when you read about my trial and and what our former district attorney uh, who was not reelected recently uh, tried to do to me was it, it was a crime, an absolute crime. Uh, I, but I let my feelings be known. I let her treachery, uh, be known. I flat out called her a racist. I called other, you know, pillars of our community. Um, I called them what I believe them to be. Uh, and there was no blowback from that whatsoever, you know? And I think again, the only defense to that is it's the truth. So why, why would you come out swinging and And fighting, if you know what was said was true, Um, the the thing, you know, Chief Willie Lovett wound up going to federal prison for uh, racketeering and gambling charges and that kind of stuff. But he was accused of running uh, an organized crime ring, basically protecting drug dealers and all these things. And that that was what was put out in the media and it was put out in the community. And this guy's protecting drug dealers and he's doing all these things. And he went to federal prison but he didn't go to prison for those things. And none of those things were ever proven. All those people did was throw out accusations saying that this is what he did. And, you know, there was never any proof to it. Uh, And the whole rest of the organized crime structure uh, that was allegedly in place, that's never been taken down in the seven years or eight years since all that occurred. So I'm like, if that was really such a big deal, wouldn't we have gone after everybody else? And, And lo and behold, nothing else was addressed. So kind of makes me wonder, did that really exist? Is that really what happened? Uh, And I didn't call uh, my former chief. I didn't call him a criminal. Uh, My former sergeant, who's a very, one of my best friends in the world. uh, I said that he was again, my best friend. That's the blowback I got like, Oh, I can't believe you're sticking up for these guys. They're this, they're that. I'm like, really? If you're going to call somebody uh, a thief or I mean, if you put it into your duties, if you're going to call somebody a gangbanger, you better damn well be able to prove that before you go out and saying that. So uh, that's the blowback I got. But my opinions are not popular with uh, a lot of people. But I don't really care because it rings—it rings true with—it uh, rings true with people when you read it. Uh, I stand by anything I've written or said. Uh, and you know, if I have a disease other than alcoholism, it's loyalty. All right. And I I stick by the people that stuck through me in my career and and I won't ever, you know, when my friends are wrong, they'll tell you I'm the first one to tell them, hey, they're wrong. When I was wrong, my best friends were the ones telling me, you dumbass, you, you you know, you're wrong. And, you know, that's what you need in life. You need people guiding you to let you know when you're when you're right, patting you on your back when you're wrong, kicking you in the ass. And and that, uh, you know. That's basically been my, uh, it's the way I was raised. You know, my, my dad was a no joke, uh, let you know how it is uh, kind of guy. And I've kind of grown that way myself.
2: And you uh, have a quote by Theodore Roosevelt right at the beginning of your book.
0: I actually was reading it. It's an excerpt from a speech uh, that President Roosevelt made. But through the course of my career, I always, I always went back and looked at it, you know, because it's so easy you know, and, and basically, it just starts with it's not the critic that counts, you know. And it's so easy for people on the outside, which is what I see happening today. You know, we see segmented clips of uh, police officers, uh, and we get half information and they put it out I'm like, "Oh, I would have done this, I would have done that." And I tell people to stop because if you've never been there, if you haven't been in that arena, if you haven't been covered in your own blood or somebody else's blood, don't don't tell cops how to do things. All right, the thing is. The police officers in this country go out every day to protect us, to defend and protect our communities. Is every one of them perfect? No. Uh, Is there police corruption and and bad things that go on? Yep. But those are the exception the rule. But for people to sit back in the media or on social media to get out there and say, oh, I would have done this. I would have done that. If you've never been there, you don't know. You know, I I catch myself doing it, too. I'll see a segment of it. I'm like, oh, man, he should have done. And then, you know, I think about that speech, the man in the arena, Uh, retired Navy SEAL uh, chief Eddie Gallagher. The title of his book is The Man in the Arena. And that dude has been in the arena. So when he talks about uh, the things that he's done and the things that he's been through and uh, unfortunately things he was put through by our government, you know, When when he speaks on those things, I listen because there's a certain amount of credibility because he's been there. And that uh, speech, like I said, it's it's always uh, rung in my head because I've been in that arena. I've had plenty of my own blood and and other people's blood on me. And, you know, that's why, you know, I feel a responsibility to step up. And when you see these reports on CNN, MSNBC or whatever, I say, whoa, wait a second. There's usually more to that story than uh, the media is telling you. So every chance I get, I say, Hey, let's let's, uh, stop because it's, it's very easy now just to say uh, and point out the thing, Ferguson, Missouri hands up, don't shoot. You know, they squeezed all that toothpaste out of that tube, but once an investigation was done and showed that that is not what happened at all, you know, you can't put that uh, back in the toothpaste. And if you ever heard anybody go back on CNN and say, hey, wait a second, we were wrong. That's factually incorrect. It it just it doesn't happen. So, you know, like I said, uh, those men and women in the arena, it's my hat's always off to them.
2: Did uh, Roosevelt give this speech before or after he got shot in the chest and survived?
0: (laughs) Very good question, but that's a bad dude. Let me tell you. (laughs) We, we need we need him back. We need a president who will do that again. Good shot in the chest, and what what was the story there? He had a book there, right? He was he was giving his bull moose speech, yeah. and uh, as he's giving the speech, he had a folded speech in his jacket pocket, and uh, it was a low caliber weapon, and it hit him, and uh, it got stopped. So basically, it was basically like having a telephone booth or telephone book shoved in your. Uh, vest and the uh, round didn't penetrate it just you know i'm sure it gave him a good jolt though
2: <laughs> still
0: it was a he was a tough <laughs> old bird apparently
2: yeah and i i just I, I i like that you started your book with that quote because it is exactly the the quiet type of strength that that um he always that he's known for you know like like know know your business and do your business well and and basically don't take shit but don't be a loud mouth about everything which i think is a, a pretty um cool way to do to go about your business and to address other people.
0: No, and the other the other thing is, you know, I, I learned early on in my army career, courage, candor, and commitment. Candor is one of the things that, you know, especially in today's day and age, people don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to they don't want you to say the things to point out things that are uncomfortable. So a lot of people just get along to go along. They're just like, oh okay, I, I I'm good with that. It doesn't, but there's not a lot of thought put behind what's going on. I, you know, I, I think it's very important. You cannot solve problems unless you're being very honest about what they are. So if if we're, you know, only given half a story, you're only coming up with half a solution. So if you tell the whole story from as many angles as you possibly can and look at it, then you come back with real solutions and and hopefully things get solved.
2: Well, I only have one more question um this has been an incredible conversation and we just blew through about a about an hour um do you have any uh plans for follow-up books <laughs>
0: yeah yeah i've been writing the second one for uh shit so this one's been out four and a half uh probably the last three years i i've been about halfway through the second book it's about a. Uh, um uh, it's about an Ossedef, uh gang case that we did here in Savannah. We focused on two neighborhoods and um, it was very, very proactive uh, approach, but we did it in a very uh, clandestine manner. You know, so we had covert uh, operations going on at the same time that we had very overt operations. And I think, um, I think it would be very good to get that information out to the general public, because they don't understand, uh, you know, I I think it would explain how police work is done uh, effectively. A a lot of people, the only time they see police work are traffic stops, or God forbid, when there's a shooting or something like that. I I think the thing I was proudest of uh, with Expo, in all of that proactive policing, we didn't shoot anybody. Now, were we in situations where people could have been shot just justified shootings absolutely but because of the personnel because of the mindset of uh proactive policing we're out there and got it and we were able to get those guns away before anybody had to be shot and we were also trained and we had the support of our command set that if we had to use these uh to get the guns out instead of just standing back and and pulling the trigger uh, then we did you know And use of force for law enforcement, it's never going to be pretty. It's never going to go. So there's always going to be complaints in the community, but uh, I'm all for community policing. I am all for going out and shaking hands and kissing babies and changing tires and and doing all those things to help the community. But you absolutely need to address uh, the guys who are not afraid to rob your sister, not afraid to shoot your brother, not afraid to... Uh, break into your house and steal your TV, you know, that needs to be addressed. And we can never forget that, you know, the uh, police departments now are expected to be social workers and psychiatrists and all of these things. You got to remember the police department's function is to keep the the good guys safe from the bad guys. It it really is that simple. And it's been dressed up over the years, but you can't forget their uh, purpose. And I, I think when crime kicks up enough where people are so uncomfortable. I mean, the unfortunate truth is if civilians, if the real world knew how unsafe you truly are, you'd be very happy when you see your police officers roll down the street.